0: Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify, as well as YouTube. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic. Gilded Age America, democracy, republic, something else. The Gilded Age in America was more than just an era of rapid economic growth, social class struggle, and cultural change. This was an extremely democratic era with fierce debates and questions on everything regarding post Civil War America, from what it meant to be a citizen to the proper relationship between the federal government and the states, to the identity and the virtues of the people who would staff governments local, state, and federal, below elected office. Some claim the system was more or less fine as it was from the start. Others said that things had changed so radically that even the very nature of the country itself needed to change. So who took what position? How is America viewed and understood in this age and all counts? But with me to discuss these issues and more is Dr. Jay Cost, author of many books examining American democratic discourse, and most recently, Democracy or Republic? The People and the Constitution. Jay, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Avi. Um, especially for a podcast about the Gilded Age, which is, I think, just a remarkable uh, era in American history. Um, and it's one that I find I find it difficult to get people interested in it. Like it's the age of the forgotten presidents, and people don't really want to know about the forgotten. But it's so interesting. Um, so I'm really thrilled to be here.
0: Pleasure is all mine. Uh, And if I may add, as someone who has read and done quite a few episodes on the subject, uh, my feeling is part of the reason it's hard to get people interested is that Americans like a simple story of good and evil with a beginning and an end. And the Gilded Age is none of that. The Gilded Age is extremely messy. It's extremely chaotic. There are good things that happen. There are bad things that happen. And everybody is often unclear on what's happening. But with that said, let's get started. So let me ask you the question I ask almost all my guests on this subject. Let us imagine um, an erstwhile Alexis de Tocqueville, or more appropriately in this era, James Bryce, comes to visit the United States at the beginning of our era, say around the time of Reconstruction, in the middle of our era in the 1890s, uh, and at the end of our era when the Progressive Era comes to an end. What would they find about American politics and political structure? on these three trips, what would have changed? What would have stayed the same?
1: That is a good question. I think that they, the I want to perhaps the most noteworthy thing, especially from a Tocquevillian perspective, would be the emergence of pretty stark economic and social inequality. And by that, I don't principally mean the emergence of the so-called robber barons, although that is certainly part of the story. I mean, instead, you see on the on the one hand, you see the emergence of the American middle class as we today understand it. And I think a great example of this is the emergence in the late 19th century of the Sears robot catalog, which is a sign of a couple things. Um, It's a sign of increased disposable income. Um, It's a sign of people with disposable income having access to um, manufactured goods at relatively cheap cost and traveling over distances. So that's... um, The middle class being able to take advantage of the Industrial Revolution, the Transportation Revolution, you see all these things. And I think particularly in the North, you see that as sort of the emergence of the kind of base of the post-war Republican Party, in many respects, the people who prospered from um, the Industrial Revolution, not the ones who got fabulously wealthy, um, but the people who were able to emerge into the middle class broadly defined so you have them um but then you also have a number of groups that are sinking or at least that are not prospering i mean the group that is sinking far and away most dramatically would be african americans in the south who are after 1876 are left by the republicans with the withdrawal of the union the last serious effort that the republicans make to um uh, uh in ensure uh political rights for african americans is um the civil rights bill of 1889 and after that particularly after 1896 um when the republicans begin to do better in the north they just lose interest in in black voters in the south so they're sort of left i think that's part of a larger story as well where the the entirety of the south is the way I like to analogize the cotton economy is sort of into heroin addiction. That that they had, that the South had plunged into cotton in the beginning of the 19th century because it was so economically valuable. But by the end of the 19th century, Southern cotton planters are in competition with India. They're in competition with Egypt. It's a global marketplace. Prices just keep plummeting. So the South is mired in this kind of um, muck. And you know, it's interesting as well because the Southern planter aristocracy response to this um, with with um, Jim Crow laws, which are usually thought correctly as an assault on the voting rights of the freedmen, which they were, but they were also an assault on the voting rights of poor whites. And they were, in, at least in part, intended to upend the incipient black-white coalition, populist coalition in, in the South. So you have that um, you also have the sort of rapid overexpansion in the West leading to uh, places, farming in places that, frankly, were not yet ready to be farmed, so like Western Kansas and things like that. So you have those people, and then and they're struggling, right? Um, in God we trusted, in Kansas we busted. And then you have, you know, to sort of facilitate this massive economic growth, you have – um, just an unleashing of immigration into the United States, particularly from Southern and Eastern Europe. And these um, immigrants tend to crowd into the cities, which don't have facilities ready for them. They don't have the public services ready for them. They don't have the educational institutions ready for them. I mean, they are they all just sort of get dumped into Irish-run political machines, and the Irish don't really care very much about them. Um and so there, you know, and that's sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, that what was it the, cl- the fire at the what was the company that there's a famous fire uh, shirt uh, shirt waist fire, fire. So, yeah, oh, the trying, yeah, that's right, you know, so you have that, and you know, another good example of the sort of underlying kind of antagonisms would be um, the Homestead Strike that ends up getting broken by um, the Pinkertons. So you have this sort of like. The people who I would say probably like the people who's who had been in America, at least among white people who had been in America for if if your ancestors lived in Ohio, if they moved into Ohio in say 1810 and they stayed in Ohio by 1890, you're doing really well. I would say you're doing better than probably anybody could have imagined in the history of the world. If, on the other hand, your ancestors or even you decided to move out to Kansas, you know, or if you're African-American in the South, likewise, or if you're an immigrant who's come from Sicily. So it's it's sort of this kind of two stories rolling simultaneously.
0: So given these two stories rolling simultaneously, and as you uh, quite rightly note, things are moving in different directions. Some people are doing really well. Some people are struggling. Some people are really sinking in. uh, I want to ask you, there was a concept that was bandied about uh, quite a bit uh, in the Gilded Age uh, that was called Ordered Liberty, that was supposed to be like the governing philosophy of the age. Uh, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge was a big fan of it. I was wondering, what exactly was that? How exactly was it supposed to help make sense of what was going on, or at least govern what was going on uh, in the United States at the time?
1: Well, I think ordered liberty is a phrase especially coming from, a car- uh, from an individual like Lodge um, would suggest um, at its core a respect for property rights. I think that one of the big challenges in the Gilded Age, particularly um, you have the emergence of movements that are seen as a threat um, to the ownership of private property you have radicalism sort of creeping up socialism communism um nothing like the leninist sort of stuff that you get in the soviet union this is more of a um uh this is not nearly as you know it doesn't provoke a red scare although there is an anxiety about communism related to you know foreignness so you have that but you also have more i don't want to I want to—I don't want to use this term advisedly, but sort of like less foreign seeming and more Jeffersonian almost. Where you look at the candidacy of a guy like William Jennings Bryan in 1896, you see—you can see the anxiety that people with property would have about his candidacy, because what. Brian was doing is he was mainstreaming populist political thought, which itself had been very radical. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the populists had called for public ownership of the railroads, um, among other things. But the fight over the currency in the 1890s was, in many respects, a fight over uh, the redistribution of wealth, which is not something that had really happened in the United States. I mean, there had been redistributional efforts had usually been through um, grants or sale of Western land. But that was sort of like, you know, selling land that was owned in common rather than transferring land from one person to another. But what Brian and the populace were really trying to do was, you know, inflate the currency artificially um, so as to alleviate the burden on the debtor class, which would have – effectively nullified or at least substantially modified a number of contracts. Mm-hmm. And so this is why particularly you see I think from somebody like well uh from like Henry Cabot Lodge this is why you begin to see an appreciation of Alexander Hamilton mm-hmm. and this sort of return to uh, you know the sanctity of contract Th- that I think is an undercurrent that is beginning to emerge um within the um within the body politic and what's interesting about it especially is is that it is something that is not just happening obviously in 1896 but you see state governments you know granger laws and things like that trying to regulate industry and that is seen as an assault on property rights and you see the supreme court Entering into the breach to defend private property under the idea that it's a you know any kind of seizing of private property is a violation of the due process clause and things like that. So when we start talking about order, anything like when we start talking about order in the context of liberty, we're almost always talking about maintaining um the, the long-standing ways in which you know in other words like we're f- you're free to move about within this area but moving outside of that area that's not that's liberty but that's disordered liberty an ordered liberty in the in the gilded age ultimately would point inevitably back to protection of
0: private property speaking of the importance of private property you mentioned uh um you mentioned uh state reforms one of the big issues that uh seems to come up uh, in the Gilded Age, a lot is that, and one of the things that actually kind of frustrates me a lot is that everybody's focus is on what happens in Washington D.C. Even in this era, when most people at least paid homage to the idea that the states should be response, states and localities should be mostly responsible for what goes on in terms of regulating health and regulating safety and regulating land use. Um, I noticed that in your, your book, Democracy or Republic, the, the People in the Constitution, there's a lot of very good discussion of um, the federal governments and people at large, but somehow the federalism question seems to sort of fall by the wayside. The, the other day, seems to me to be, to be a, actually a very good example of how states actually bend together quite a bit. A state or a city served as the shiny example of reform, and everybody copied it. Like, for instance, uh, uh, the state, it used to be that the uh, senators um, senators were all elected by state legislatures and that caused all sorts of problems. So the state of Oregon came up with, what quote unquote, the Oregon plan that eventually led to the 17th Amendment. Um, I was wondering if you could comment a, a bit about maybe that maybe that was actually a better example than, say, the constant war, more, more ecumenical, more democratic. the constant effort by say uh, the northeast to force itself on the midwest or the midwest to force itself on the south uh via congress that states should inspire one another instead of constantly looking for federal laws
1: yeah i think that's a fair point i so the book um i wanted to keep the book small and focused on Really, like the the, the book is uh, meant as a con- – more than anything else is meant as a constitutional defense of Congress.
0: Right.
1: So f- federalism as is an issue is not something that I really – had occasion to talk about I mean there's two ways to think about federalism the one is the role that the states have as states in selecting mm-hmm. officers for the national government which is something I talk about in the electoral college and the Senate I talk about the Senate at length mm-hmm. um but the other one is the idea of power sharing between the states and that's something um that I left aside just because it it just I, I felt like I actually had drafted a chapter on that and had decided that that would I want it because the book is pretty short. The book's only like 140 pages. I think it's only like 50,000 words and I wanted to keep it nice and tight. Um, I might revisit that at some point in the future, but I, I think you're, you're definitely onto something. And I, and I would, I, I mean, just sort of my own reaction to that. I mean, you mentioned the Oregon plan. I think in a lot of respects, you see this, this pressure in many respects coming from the West um, you you know, the o- Oregon inspires the 17th Amendment, but it's also the Western states that are the first to admit women, generally speaking. I think that Wyoming allowed women to vote as a territory in like 1866 or something like that. So the West and, and which, you know, kind of makes sense because the West is in many respects um, more egalitarian. I think the New England at this point, certainly more egalitarian than the cities of the East. And they keep that the egalitarian ethos is sort of manifested as a kind of populism, not as a not as a like an anti-railroad Bryanist populism, but just a populism in like, for instance, Cal- it's not a surprise that California has a recall initiative, um, but Pennsylvania does not. The further west you go, the more likely you are to have state constitutions that have democratic institutions, small D democratic institutions. And so you're right, the West. And the states in general – and you see this as well with – there's a conflict that emerges where the problems of rapid industrialization um lead to – it creates winners and losers. I mean the country as a whole ends up winning. There is, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But there are factions that lose. And a lot of times these factions are – don't have the capacity to – alter the status quo on the national level, um, but they do have a capacity on the state level. And so you see states are really the first to meaningfully try to regulate industry, to regulate the railroads. And, and this is where you see the Supreme court um, really kind of remarkably, if you consider even it's just recent history, like you would think that after Dred Scott, the Supreme court would have sunk into infamy for longer than it did but by the 1880s the supreme court is back to a very activist stance striking down laws on the basis of you know regulation of industry either because it belongs properly to the federal government or you know later on the creation of the idea of uh, you know the Fourteenth Amendment, um, the substantive due process arguments that the court is most famous in Lochner, and I was that, nineteen oh four. So you see this kind of tension that's emerging. Not just that the states are sort of in the lead, but that entities of the federal government are actively because that is where I think um, the property owners retained the most political influence was in um, in the national government, particularly um, in the Senate and so unsurprisingly um they would have that you know the supreme court would ultimately reflect um the views of the senate uh which it did
0: that's a that's a great point you are very much correct that the the republicans and especially very much what they would call they were not they were called less conservative than or republicans uh held sway there um i thought i might bring bring that up because You mentioned how property owners had a lot of power. This was an era in which um, one of the big fights, certainly in the latter half of this period, was uh, the question of what it means to be citizen, especially the right to vote. Now, I'm a little bit confused. Maybe you could explain to me. How is it that the right to select your own, to select and be elected to office was not considered a fundamental right? in the United States at the federal level until 1920 when the 19th Amendment was passed that it was still a matter of very serious debate that late in the game That
1: is a good question
0: um I I'm not
1: exactly sure I you know I don't really have a lot of I haven't had a lot of occasion to study the the, the, the details of the night of the Nineteenth Amendment and the way in which it became enacted. It is remarkable um, that you know Seneca Falls happens in like the eighteen forties, and the Nineteenth Amendment isn't ratified and doesn't women don't get the right to vote nationally until nineteen twenty. I, I do think it speaks to what you were suggesting a moment ago: the stand pattedness of the eastern states um, and, and the extent to which many, many states on the in the east and more than a few in the Midwest had established political machines that were more or less immune to the broader social forces going on. And when you combine those states with the um again, I you could call it the Stan Pat conservatism of the South, although it would be very different. You know, these are these are systems of politics that operate on a closed basis in many respects. Like I to, to me, the best example of that is Rhode Island, right? In, in Rhode Island, the, the way in which seats in the legislature were apportioned was by town. Uh, because this is far before, you know, we don't get one man, one vote until like the 1960s. Um, So seats in the legislature were apportioned by town. Um, And so what that meant was that the small towns dominated Rhode Island politics in the legislature. And of course that meant if you, you know, if if they're controlling the legislature, then they control everything. Um, And so a character like Nelson Aldrich could you know, basically all all his operation had to do was to go to the small towns and literally, he literally paid people to vote for him, right? Um, And you see this, it's not just in Rhode Island. There's a faction in Indiana known as the Purchasables, right? That there's, that people's votes were literally for sale. Um, And and so this is, it's an interesting, uh, likewise, it's an interesting phenomenon in, in a lot of respects here where you begin to see um, a kind of redistributive policy in the United States. Uh, like I'll give you an example of that, like um, the spoil system. The spoil system starts as, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson proclaiming the virtues of rotation in office and which, you know, made some sense. Um, but it, within a decade, it becomes clear that that po- political parties can, can use the spoil system To basically finance politics. And it just, and from there, it just gets larger and larger and larger. And, and so what ends up happening, I think, in a lot of respects is, if you've ever seen, um, the way I like to explain it to my students is sort of like, although a lot of them haven't seen the movie, but like the movie Casino. Mm-hmm. where after after the money goes off the floor, it's counted and the mob the mafia bosses are just standing there pocketing a large portion. And so imagine instead of like the casino floor, it's the entirety of America's overseas trade that is just coming in and like, and like these political machines are just acquiring like skimming off of the top. It's a huge amount of money that can then be spread around wide and far. To to maintain their political preeminence. I mean, it's I I I mean it's when you think about the political machines, particularly in New York, um, in the the ability of the New York Republican Party to control that state, despite um despite Tammany Hall, and even uh, to me the most extraordinary example of that um, is Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania political machine was so powerful that Pennsylvania, they, they actually delivered Pennsylvania for Hoover in 1932. It's extraordinary. And it it, it speaks to this sort of like, well, why Pennsylvania? Because Pennsylvania had industry, it had farming, it, it was extremely diversified. It had shipping through Philadelphia and, and like the, 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 the state political machine controlled city, like there were these feet machines in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. And the entire thing was like clamped down like rock solid. It's just extraordinary. And it it created a kind of like a a, a vast constituency of people who had personal economic reasons to support the status quo. It's really remarkable.
0: It genuinely is remarkable. Uh, And as you mentioned, the question of political machines, both uh, Republican and Democratic, Uh, played a very big role uh, in this era, as did the fight against them. Uh, I thought I might ask a bit of a provocative question in that context. Um, At the time, uh, progressive reformers basically came forward and said, look, uh, a lot of these people, uh, they're not really competent to do the job. They're more loyal to their boss than serving the people. Um, Every president, no matter what party, couldn't stand the constant... Blood of people coming in saying, I can't paint for you. Now make me a postmaster and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So there was a lot of understandable uh, critique and slowly but surely a lot of core positions at the local state and federal government became quote unquote professionalized. Uh, and, but the problem is, is that we now live say about a century more than much more than a century after that system. And I think that we can stay with experience that there are problems with that system, too. There are problems with that system. I would, I, I would, I would point to two. The first is accountability. Say what you will about the spoil system. At the very least, you could vote the bum out and they bring in new bums, right? Because they fired the other guys and put in their people. What happens now with the permanent bureaucracy is that no one ever gets punished for anything, no matter how egregious. The people who are responsible for day-to-day governance at every level are effectively shielded from real accountability by the people. That's one. The second is that I remember I've seen a number of cases, and I'm sure there are plenty of cases like that, where you have cities where you have a spoil system, but it's a spoil system for the college educated. So you'll pay this NGO, and you'll pay that NGO, and you'll pay this. How is that functionally different? from picking up a, picking up guys off the street who work for you and giving them money. So we seem to be kind of back to square one only we pretend that it's more professional.
1: I completely agree with you. Um and I would I would I don't have any points of disagreement. I have only thoughts to amplify it. Um to your point about throwing the bums out, that that was always possible. I mean that could happen it happened a couple times in Pennsylvania. Um the Cameron machine kind of fought its way back, um, you know. You, but it, it happened. It, you know, it could happen, um, and in fact, you kind of do see it happen. Like, for instance, if you look at the battle that um, that um, Rutherford Hayes, and then following that, James Garfield fought against Roscoe Conkling for control of the New York, the port of New York City um conkling loses i mean conkling is not a senator by 1884 he's out um he lost control of that and it was it it was acquired by the president the president took that position back to your point i would add another thing too and you sort of keyed on this but talking about it's like middle class patronage now and i think that one of the advantages of the patronage system was that it was more egalitarian in a way like any schmo could get one of these jobs um anybody could have one of these jobs i mean obviously like you had to you know among white men right but if you worked for the party and the jobs were locally controlled and locally distributed so they would be people you know Nowadays, though, these jobs are reserved, as you said, for their upper middle class. They're increasingly hereditary by de facto. I mean, we talk a lot, for instance, like there's a lot of talk about, you know, race based admissions policies at the elite universities. But one of the things we don't really mention is that the universities pursue race based admissions so aggressively as a kind of political cover for their legacy based admissions where these universities are basically perpetuating a cadre and they're per- perpetuating this cadre because the the the, the 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 elder members are rich and keep the universities rolling in the dough in exchange they get the children they get the scions of the of the elders come in right so it's all it's it's increasingly a very closed system and it's a system that i would argue that where a lot of in you see this like in the state department you see like all these like you're seeing it right now in the state department all of these people are like you know publicly increasingly like um grinding the gears on um, the foreign policy of the united states towards israel why are they doing that is it, it they're doing it in part because they don't they're not reflective of the views of the mass public you know, they 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 soaked up the kind of like post-colonial radicalism that is only that's only toehold in the American mind. Is it the universities? That's where they that's where they're from. That's where their ideas are born and nurtured and sustained. They you ask people around here where I live, they'd be like, what are you? Are you crazy? That, that's crazy talk. Um, and so increasingly and, and I think more than anything else, too that this this challenges a fundamental premise of the meritocratic system of administration if you read if you go back and like read woodrow wilson's this he calls it the science of public administration there was a conviction that public administration was and could be and properly is value neutral and so therefore it sh- if it's value neutral then it should not be involved in politics if it's if it's just simply a matter of turning the correct uh, dials and pressing the correct buttons to yield the policy result that has been um, has been decreed through the political process, then it should be left to pe- experts who are valueless or who or whose own personal morality doesn't enter into it. But we increasingly know that that is not the truth. We increasingly have seen over the last. Since the end of World War II, but really I would say since the 1970s, we've increasingly seen how public administration is actually full of value-laden choices. And these are choices that in a republic should belong to the people, but they don't. They don't belong to the people. They don't belong to the people's representatives. Congress handed all of this power over the course of the last 75 years to the executive branch under the assumption that the administration of these of congressional go do this, like they would just go and do it. And then they turn around and they pursue their own goals and values, which is, again, something that th- did that happen during the during the spoil system? Oh, absolutely. It did. However, as you as you suggested, you know, if you're really sick and tired of it, you can vote, like, in 1880, if you're tired of this, vote in Grover Cleveland, because he will clean the entire thing out, which is exactly what he does. And there's, like, you could, it doesn't, to the point now, it almost doesn't matter who we elect president. There's nothing he can do.
0: So, if I may play devil's advocate, uh, just to get your reaction. Uh, Wilson mm-hmm. did make an important point, uh, and so did other progressives. And it's a challenge that I believe that people who aren't progressive, whether conservative or classical liberal, do need to take seriously. You spend a lot of time, and rightly so, I think, talking about the thought of the framers, uh, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. American society in their day was, despite certain developments of technology, relatively about the same in a lot of places, mostly farming and rural, mostly small, tight-knit communities. Uh, You had no major metropolis. Like That's one of the things Pocqueville said about, in the Gilded Age, certainly by the middle and definitely by the end, you have a number of cities that are unquestionably metropolis. New York City is a giant. Chicago is a giant. And you have lots of places and even though um, you're not going to see the mass light from rural America that started in the 1950s with mechanization, and there are, gro- farm communities are still relatively growing, cities are growing far faster. And city communities are growing far faster. And it's much, it's a much more interconnected, much more bewildering, much more chaotic, much less stable world that the framers inhabited. And so maybe we disagree with the solution that woodrow wilson would have saying we need a cadre of experts who claims are politically neutral to run this but it's a serious question I mean, with such a fundamentally transformed america can the old system work with adaptations and if so how
1: that is a good question um i mean that's that's in many respects that's the question um and i think you're pointing to and it's. I mean, you're not articulating this, obviously, but the, the most sort of, I don't want to say extreme, because it is an increasingly mainstream opinion, but the most negative opinions about the framers and the founding of the country usually go back to this idea that it's so old, the Constitution is so old that it's, you know, outdated, right? That right. the institutions that exist within the within the Constitution are no longer operable. Um, I mean, obviously I disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and one of the reasons I wrote this book, Democracy or Republic was, was to sort of get to, okay, well, what is the constitution actually trying to do? Like, and, and and my point in the, in the, in the, in the book, well, my, my sort of big theoretical argument is that the constitution is a work of political philosophy that is in conversation with philosophers going back to Plato and like it's, it's in dialogue with Plato's Republic and with Aristotle's politics and with Machiavelli's discourses on Livy and, and Montesquieu and Hume and Locke and Harrington. Um, It's in dialogue with all of these different, um, these different um, works in the Western canon. And, and it's trying to answer the same question that they're all trying to, which is, uh, you know, how given the, um, on the one hand you have at the very, uh, on the either political society is so expedient that we can't not take it, which would be Locke's view. Right. Or it's just intrinsic to our nature as is Aristotle's view. Right. So we po- political society, civil society has to exist. And civil society properly defined is its goal is to pursue justice. The problem is, is that justice, human beings are selfish. And so how do you get a, a, a government run by human beings to work for the, for the sake of the community rather than the sake of the people in charge. And the constitution has a particular answer to that, that is sophisticated, um, it was sophisticated for its time. It was revolutionary for its time. The Constitution, at the time, said, you know, was was a was a response in the negative to all of the all the potentates of Europe, um, which basically said you need some kind of monarchy. You need to elevate some guy who's so far above everybody else that he can't be bribed, um, or you know, maybe like God's anointed, right, and somebody who knows that everything he does is going to be judged by God, and that will keep him in line. The founders reject that. They reject. Um, the idea of a hereditary aristocracy they reject the in other words the sort of the orders like in the house of the 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 parliament or the states general right they reject that and so they're gonna we're gonna do some sort of democracy and the democracy that will the problem then and, and again this is goes back to you know, the ancients to the Greeks was so the what, democracy is liable to be corrupted because people like the masses will often just, if they get their hands on the state, then how are they gonna how how are you gonna keep them from you know ruining the state for their own for their own fortunes? And the answer that the founders came up with, and this is the argument in the book, and, and I think it's and the reason why I I believe in the constitution is cause I still think that this is the correct answer. The answer they came up with was we need to promote consensus in the lawmaking process. Mm-hmm. Like how do we, we empower the people to govern how do we keep them from doing so in a bad way and how do we do so like without even like cuz when they're designing the constitution they have some sense of the tasks that the new government's going to face but they're also aware that this government's going to have to last for a long time and so it's going to encounter policy problems they can't even envision so they like so they're sort of thinking in the abstract right mm-hmm. um and and my the claim that I'm the contention in my book is that the, Fra- the the constitution empowers majorities that are larger, in other words, not just like half plus one. The larger the majority, the more able it'll be to govern. A broader majority that takes in more and more factions within society, particularly geographical factions, mm-hmm. and also more considered, not flash in the pan sentiments, but more considered, deliberate judgments of the public. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the founders make what i i call an empirical bet it's not always correct um but if you bet this like over the course of history you it's one of those things that in the long run you'd win out on is that the larger the broader the more durable majority the more likely what they want is actually for the good of the people and so the more power they should have to govern but that's how our constitution works Mm -hmm. and my my contention and I, i mean yes the world has changed um, and yes, they, we have electricity and you and I are talking via internet, which they could never even have contemplated. But at the same time, though, they're in conversation that, ha- that had been going on for 2,000 years already. Mm-hmm. So this is something that is bigger than the social and economic context. And the idea of consensus is, a, is, the, cor- is the best idea. Mm-hmm. And so insofar as we're going to talk about changing the Constitution, and we can always talk about that we should change it to facilitate con- consensus because mm-hmm. consensus is the appropriate idea for how the people govern themselves now that's my the general sort of thing with respect to the administration of the of uh, 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 with respect to public administration mm-hmm. and with respect particularly to the various crises of the gilded age there are there are certain issues that the constitution is just not going to speak to um, a good example of that is the filibuster. The Constitution, like I'm a fan of the filibuster. I would think it should be reformed. It's it's entirely up to the Senate, right? It's entirely up. Now, you can argue that the filibuster is good. It promotes consensus in certain ways. But if the Senate wants to get rid of it, it they're allowed to do so. The Constitution just creates a broad architecture. Mm-hmm. And I think even today, there are all sorts of ways in which the polity that we have designed is consistent with a read on the constitution but is is not consistent with its underlying values and norms and this vision of consensus and i think something like that happened in the gilded age
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i think um and i think an underlying point of wilson's was a, an acceptance a, a conviction that the founders got A lot of fundamental things correct. And I think that this was a progress more broadly, the progressives. I mean, certainly Teddy Roosevelt thought this, that what they were trying to do, and I think they were not wrong about this in many respects is they were trying to restore like the progressive vision was a vision of like, let's make the principles and ideals of the founding relevant in a society that has inequality of wealth, that is economically integrated, um, that has the rise of the industry, that has all these factions and and that at the same time has corruption. Like we've, we've gotten away from the principles of the founding. We need to get back to it, but we don't get back to it by going back to say like, you know, a government of gentlemen like the State Department was under like Jefferson, Madison and Monroe, where that's not the correct answer. We need to like re-envision things. And and I think that like we can be like very critical of the modern bureaucracy while acknowledging that when this was proposed in the 1880s and 1890s, that there was, they were onto something, that something needed to change. Another example of that I think is the direct election of senators. I mean, I I, I know a lot of conservatives hate the direct election of senators. Um, I'm sympathetic to that. But, you know, my response is always like, you need to understand just how bad the Senate was by the time this, this, the 17th Amendment was enacted. The Senate was a cesspool of corruption. It was something was going wrong. And I, and I think that one of the problems that we have today um, is... It, it, it is that like, if you look at the progressive movement and look at this like burst of reform, um, it didn't come out of nowhere. It was predated by you know, a, a half century of intellectual ferment among, frankly, political elites. Like Henry Adams would be a good example of this. Like a, a smart guy who, in a previous age, like Henry Adams, entire conceit is like, if I had been born when my granddad was, I would have been president of the United States too, and I'm not. And everything this is terrible. And everything, you know. So, uh, and 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 so you have from like the liberal Republicans, the Mugwumps, and even like borrowing from the. Per- the populace like the progressive movement comes out of this like widespread conviction that the fundamental instrumentalities of the government are broken and there was a lot of intellectual legwork the concern that i have now i think is that like those sorts of intellectuals who had been like antagonized like the P- the republicans who voted for cleveland in 1884, because they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Blaine. Like all of those people now, or or a critical mass, not all of them, but a critical mass of them have either been, are just useless radicals in the university system, um, whose ideas are completely impractical um, and who have no social relevance, except like insofar as they're corrupting the minds of young people by creating new little petite radicals. So there's either that group or there's there are people like as we were talking about a moment ago like um intellectuals are the primary beneficiaries of this new machine they're not going to put in any kind of legwork, intellectual legwork, to like to 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 identify the network of ngos as a problem for republican governance because they're all in ngos and and so so i i think we're in a terrible position then like even relative, even like relative to like I, a good example of this would be i, I think a, probably the best way to put this would be this is that when james garfield was assassinated in 1881 it shifted the overton window on corruption right like it was sort of the country the conscience of the country was shocked and it was in that moment when, when that overton window shifted that the republicans could just grab the Pendleton Civil Service Act and say, here, let's do this, right? We already have these ideas already packaged up. Now, the Republicans admittedly didn't like the Pendleton Act, but that, but like the Mugwumps said and the liberal Republicans had been promoting this, like, here, we already have this. Let's just do this. And like, if we were to get a, 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 an instance now where like some exogenous force would shift the Overton window, those of us who want reform, we don't have the institutional capacity we've lacked it for so long we're all just like voices in the wilderness we don't have there's no we don't have the institutional backup to formulate formulated a series of laws and have have them advocated and entered into the conversation we're just all sort of out here like yeah this is terrible but there's nothing we can do about it
0: and on that very optimistic note uh, I would like to very much uh, thank you for uh, this conversation. It's been very enlightening. I've certainly learned a lot more about Pennsylvania politics than I ever knew. Uh, Dr. Cost, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like, to one again, I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner.